Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I believe in my strength as a human being. I believe in my ability as a mother. I believe in myself as an artist. I have heard my true voice, and I appreciate what she has to say. I was so blinded by life's traumas to see what I truly wanted in life. And now I know that's just to be happy. That was Haley Bennett. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. man in the whole world. I feel so lucky. You're not mad at me? Mom, we're pregnant. About what? I just want to make sure I'm not doing anything wrong. You couldn't do anything wrong, even if you tried. it make you feel when you swallow something? I just like the textures in my mouth. It made me feel in control. In control. 
going to make you happy. Bennett is both the lead and an executive producer on the project. And uh, while March tends to be a rather dull month at the movies, I have to say this is one worth seeking out. It will be released in theaters Friday, March 6th, and is likely to expand in the weeks to follow. I say this sometimes on the show, but it's still true. Independent movies are hard to get made. They are fairly easy to support if you have the time and the means um, and the film is playing at a city near you. The only way a movie like this expands across the country and gets played for a wider, more diverse audience is that where it does play, uh, you go out and support a movie like this. So I hope you check out Swallow. It is an important film about motherhood and femininity and the sort of pervasive nastiness of misogyny and what one expects in a male-to-female partnership. Um, it is a very timely film. I think Haley is fantastic in it. I don't give too many like endorsements on this show, but I really do think she does something special here. So it's out Friday, March 6th. If you'd like to learn more about the movie, you can do so at our website at talkeasypod.com. It's in our show notes on the Haley Bennett page. Um, one thing of housekeeping before we get into the conversation at the end of this episode, uh, you'll notice that there is 15 minutes after this interview ends of the podcast. It is not a mistake. It is not a clerical error. Um, something happened on Twitter over this past week. Um, it's not something I usually would comment on or talk about, at least not within an intro or outro, but it's something I think worth talking about. So... Um, those of you listening who know what I'm talking about, some words on it at the end. But for now, here is the wonderful Haley Bennett. Haley Bennett. <laughs> Hello, Sam. There are so many places to start with you. I guess I want to go with right now. How are you feeling? Right now, I am feeling like I have endorphins that are being released because I just ate chocolate. Um, and I'm feeling quite excited to be discussing this film, Swallow, mm -hmm. because I really like it. What did you like about it when you said yes to it? When I read the script, I was shocked and disturbed and excited and beguiled. And I also received a letter, a very complimentary letter from Carlo, talking about how much he loved me as an actress. So at right then and there, at that moment, I decided I wanted to work with him. Someone was very uh, flattering. He was very flattering. He liked and me. And he really seemed to get me. <laughs> and my, my range of, uh, <laughs> my range as an actress. And I was like, finally, someone gets me. Mm -hmm. um, you were waiting I've been waiting for this letter No, um, so really it was the, the script, the story It felt very timely It also, I connected with it on a very personal level And then I 
met Carlo, and he was very open and honest, and he told me that this was a story that was inspired by his grandmother, who was institutionalized for um, habits of control, OCD, obsessive hand-washing in the late 40s. And she was institutionalized against her will, and she was lobotomized against her will. And he very passionately shared this with me, and that passion throughout the process of filming never wavered or faltered. He he was explosively excited to express this story through this beautiful medium. And I also served as a executive producer, so this was the first time that I was able to that I was empowered to use my voice and to shape a story in this way and to get so involved in the filmmaking process. I'm just real grateful to Richie and you guys for providing me some solid ground to stand on, you know? Plus, I have so much free time now for drawing and whatever. The best advice anyone ever gave me was fake it till you make it. Are you a faker or have you made it? I'm sorry? Are you happy or are you pretending to be happy? I'm happy. I was watching the film again today and I was thinking about how the New York Times wrote something. I think it came out of... Mom's Attack. Mom's Attack. And uh, in the article they write... Swallow is so effectively disturbing because there are a few Freudian tears more primal than that of the mother figure who turns on her children or the woman who violently rejects the very idea of maternity. You became a mother two years ago now. So it's funny because I was pregnant with my daughter when I filmed this movie. I found out a day prior to filming that I was pregnant. So that really added an interesting layer. The serendipity of that. The serendipity of it. And, you know, this foreign entity that you don't know growing inside of you, it's really, really odd. But it was a good time for me to have a child, and it was with the right person. Um, How did you know it was the right time? You just, I felt it. And that was something that was odd and kind of, like you said, serendipitous in this moment. I've known when it wasn't right, and I've, you know, I knew this time it was right, and that I had, you know, the choice, and that it was my choice, and that I was with the right person, and I was doing it for myself and not somebody else. Unlike Hunter, you know, she was sort of serving as this vessel to the heir of Richie's family, of this wealthy man's family, and. There's a scene in the film where she's just so unsettled by the fact that she's boring this child. And I thought that sort of the exploration of what it means to be on the verge of motherhood, it was fascinating to be also along with her on the verge of motherhood. Mm. Yeah. You know, timing seems to be everything, especially as an actor, I think. And I was kind of combing through your background and how you landed here. And I'm, and I'm curious to kind of start at this moment where 
you leave Ohio and you move here. I believe it's 2005, 2006? 2007, I think. I, yeah, 2007. 2000, maybe 2007, 2006, 2007. Yeah, I don't so know you're... Exactly. 32. <laughs> yes. At that time, At 17, that 16, 17. I was, I was 18 when I moved here. 18. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, on just a, on a human level, what were you feeling moving to a place you had never been before? Your entire family had never left Ohio. Did you have anxiety about uprooting? Well, I've suffered with anxiety my entire life. Um, <laughs> Welcome. Um, and I think that that was sort of probably the catalyst to my choice to leaving Ohio was trying to escape that anxiety, but realizing that later that there was no escaping it. <laughs> um, so in hindsight, it was a fool's errand. Um, it seems to always follow you, doesn't it? Luckily, um, I love this beautiful medium of telling stories and and also being a vessel. That's funny enough. But yeah, I, I had a lot of anxiety and I made so many mistakes and things for the wrong reasons. But, you know, I think at this juncture in my life, I'm able to say that I'm purely doing things for me and telling stories for me. And that started with Swallow. Mm. And it was this incredible symbiotic moment where the process met the content. And I was finding my voice as a true collaborator. You know, the it takes a long time to arrive at whatever true voice it is in terms of making something. Yeah. Um, and in looking at where you start, you have this quote that I really like. Uh, you get the job for music and lyrics. Yeah. You're playing a, a kind of like ditzy pop star. It's a comedy. And you said of that time... That was a horror film for me. Well... I was terrorized. <laughs> well, I would love to get into that. But there's something you said oh in 2016. You said nothing came that easily ever again. Yeah. I think you meant like just getting the job. Yeah. But what was it like on that film at 18 here in L.A. with no one that you know? Well, so I always wanted to live in New York and I don't even remember why I moved to L.A. I don't know, so long ago. Uh, I always wanted to live in New York, so I ended up coming to Los Angeles and two months later being sent to New York to film music and lyrics. It happened quick. Which was fantastic. I was like, great, I'm living in New York now, and I was living in a terrible neighborhood. I was like on 55th and 7th or something at a hotel on like the 100th floor. Oh, my God. I don't know how I did it. I don't know how I survived. So I felt that, in a way, my entire career up to maybe a few years ago, um, had been mostly spent people telling me what to wear, where to stand, and what angle or position I looked the most attractive. And so I was, I really thought that that was my value. Like I thought that, for instance, in that experience, I was asked to lose 20 pounds. And so I started smoking cigarettes and thought like, oh, I'm 18 years old. This is how an 18-year-old thinks. Like, okay, if I start smoking cigarettes and starve myself and dance for 10 hours a day, then I'm going to be what everybody else wants me to be. And 
I think that that experience happened multiple, 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 multiple times over the course of past, let's say, 10 years. And that was part of, I think, the rebellion of wanting to make this film is that fact exactly. Did you think it was normal when they asked you to do that? Yeah, I thought it was completely normal. I thought, like, I'm not worthy and I'm a piece of shit and, like, I need to be what they want me to be in order to survive or in order to please or in order to be, you know, what in my mind was, like, like in Hunter's instance, what was the perfect wife? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, this is what I have to do. This is what actors do. They. This is the perfect actress. This is the perfect actress. Um, and so I think in this performance, I was able, like, I use that stuff, you know? Like, that was, it's traumatizing, I think, for a young person to come from complete obscurity and then be told how to be and what to look like and... And not really value any part of, like, the art form in a way. I didn't know what I was doing. I just wanted to be successful and I wanted to make movies and I wanted to tell stories. But, you know, so this really, this film kind of marks a change for me. Mm. Why do you think you didn't have value at that time? Um... Because what do you base your value on? I mean, I can't imagine girls and people now with social media, and I didn't know what I didn't know what to base my value on uh, then. You know, I had. Oh no, I thought I was an idiot at eighteen. I still. I mean, I don't. It's so. like your mindset as an eighteen-year-old. You don't really have anything to base yourself value on unless you have like an extremely well-adjusted family, and I didn't. And so I was just kind of learning as I went, and that was what I learned. Mm. I learned that my value was uh, superficial. I think both our parents split up. Yeah. I, I don't know what age <laughs> that happened for you. Yeah. Um, but it happened very early for me. Yeah. It was like before I one. think that's like there's a high percentage of yeah. people that have that experience. You said your dad was essentially a single father. You also called him a hunter. You also said he was deeply competitive, which you may have taken from him. <laughs> Is that still true? Um, I think I'm extremely self-critical. And one of the ways that I relate with Hunter is my OCD. But probably because in my childhood I was really trying to contr- um, to create some kind of semblance of control. So I find all of this mental health issues stuff really quite fascinating. Mm. What were you trying to control? My existence, life, um, <laughs> my happiness. I don't, you know, I don't know. I didn't know this was going to get existed. <laughs> <laughs> we can go to superficial. If you prefer. <laughs> no, it's okay. I'm happy to do it. No, it's okay. What was it like to work? No, I can't. It's just I can't. I can't. What was it like to work with Denzel? I can't. I can't. I am curious, actually, how. (laughs) (laughs) I went to my mom's wedding the other day, and that's pretty much, that's funny. (laughs) My my mom's wedding. I went to my mom's wedding the other day, and I was, like, asked maybe ten times what it was like to work with Denzel Washington. And I, great, really good, great, (laughs) great. Well, the thing is, you can't give an honest answer. I mean, what is the honest answer? I don't even know. You know better than I would. I think what's fascinating about this time is it goes well early for you in a way that I think 
Most people who want to act are like, how does that happen? I want that. Did it go well early? I don't know. You don't think it did? Oh, God. I don't know. The grass is always greener on the other side, I suppose. It could could be better. It could be worse. Yeah, but when, <laughs> I can tell when you're looking back on it, you felt you seem to only see the mistakes now. Yeah, that's true. That's That's probably true. At the time, did you know what you wanted to do or where? You wanted to go? No, I had no map at all. I had no idea what I was doing. I still don't, really. I just want to make work that's meaningful and do what I did with Swallow over and over and over and over and over again. (laughs) Um, But that's quite difficult as well. There's no perfect answer or situation, I think. It's Mm. all just trial and error. In the late 2000s and then the early 2010s, you described that time as... Like I was waiting for a pot to boil, and a watch pot never boils. You also said, I was a bit like Dorothy following the yellow brick road, except there was no good witch. Oh, God. Sound very emo. (laughs) (laughs) Avril, is that you? Um, Yeah, again, I... Does that sound emo? I'm constantly dissatisfied. And insecure and, you know, whatever. It's classic probably actress syndrome. I don't know. Um, I rarely approach things with confidence. Um, yeah. You Do you not approach things with confidence because you don't think that you're good at the thing that you do? Um, I think you're pretty good. No. I, w- I would say. Well, no, it's not even that. I think I'm really good at what I do. Okay, <laughs> I'm just waiting for everyone else to figure that out. Um, no. <laughs> Carlo. Finally, we're getting some truth in here. <laughs> Finally. It took me 17 minutes, but we got it. <laughs> I think it's so great. Why doesn't anyone else? That's the truth. Um, no, I, I, it's complicated. I don't know. Human beings are complicated creatures. I believe that. That's why we have an hour to talk. <laughs> Do we have an hour? Fuck, yeah. how long has it been? <laughs> I'm sweating. Are you anxious? I know. Yes. Do these things make you uncomfortable? On camera makes me uncomfortable. Being off camera, I'm totally fine. I'm mm-hmm. like a completely different person. Yeah. Like you put a camera on me and I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I get paralyzed. Me too. Well, I think that started early because I remember that when you came here and wanted to act, in terms of performing on stage and in front of people, you would break out in hives. Oh, and my your, God. Your lips would quiver. And I still ha- do. I did KTLA morning show this morning, and I was, like, convulsing and pretending like I was okay, and I wasn't. Um, do you have a trick now to get out of that? Call therapist (laughs) um channel someone else Mm -hmm. i guess has been which is what somebody told me to do i do that channel like joan of arc who do you channel (laughs) um (laughs) in like social situations Uh if i'm super uncomfortable and i don't know people i pretend like it's i'm gary shandling (laughs) and it's just like a talk show so it's like every i'm just gonna try to be the most charming and funny (laughs) And like idiotic version of myself. We both sound like serial killers. No, no, we no, we do, we do. <laughs> Me maybe more than you. It's not like you kicked everyone out of the room. <laughs> I'm so sorry I kicked all those people out of the room. But also, the show's been happening for four years. It's one of those. Uh, if Gloria Steinem was okay with it, Laura yeah. Dern was okay. I think we're gonna be okay. Oh, that's fantastic. 
But I hate offending people. Uh, I love offending people. You do? Yeah. Since when? I don't think I've ever offended anybody in my life, so that is a complete lie. Yeah, so you're unsuccessful at the thing you love to do. Actually, I'm I'm probably good at offending my parents. (laughs) Your parents are split, and again, not to quote you, but I have to quote you. One thing you wanted uh, a few years ago is that since your mother lives in Florida... And your father's in Ohio, at least at this time. Yeah. One of your dreams and hopes is that you wanted to get them in the same room and have a dinner together. I'm curious because we both come from parents of divorce. How do you think it's affected your work in a way? Oh, God. Their separation was a very good thing. I think it... (laughs) I think I... I don't know if I would be here if they hadn't been separated. So I, I don't think that I would be alive or have a career um, <laughs> if they hadn't separated. I would have been, like, in the middle of their hurricane. Um, so you wouldn't be here if they didn't break up? Yeah, probably not. Where would you be? Not alive. Okay. Yeah. Just gone. Just gone. <laughs> Either self-inflicted or by them, I don't know. I think I'd still be here even if they stayed together. Oh, that's good. I just wouldn't be as happy, probably. Or interesting. Or interesting. Oh, you think I'm interesting? Or traumatized. Oh, no, I'm definitely traumatized. (laughs) That's definitely true. You know, in the 10 years, this is fascinating to me, is that in 2007, music and lyrics comes out. I imagine you shot it in 2006. Yeah. 10 years later you have this kind of year in movies that I know you're rolling your eyes, but it's the kind of year that people are like, wow, you're in Magnificent Seven and Girl on the Train and Rules Don't Apply and all the things seem to be happening. You're nodding like, this is untrue. No, it's kind of like, I know it was all, it, it was fantastic. It was really exciting, like everything leading up to that. And then it happened Um, Well, I have a question before it happened. Okay. Which is, was there a moment in that decade where you thought, I think I just got to go back home to Ohio? No. I don't think so. I mean... You didn't think about giving up? Oh, before then. Right. Oh, yes, 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 yes. I had contemplated my failures probably... um, or what I consider my failures that other people might have considered successes. I don't know. It's all trivial, but not to in the context of my life. Um, why do you say it's trivial? I mean, I know why, <laughs> like, the movies can be rendered yeah. trivial. Yeah. But I think I'm not really asking about the movie. I'm more asking about what these things meant to you, which I wouldn't want to call your life and well, your experiences no, trivial. it's so much more complicated than that, but... I guess, okay, so what are we talking, what years are we talking about? We're talking about f- f- between music and lyrics in 2000. 2007 and 2014, 15, something okay. like that. Yeah. I mean, those are very significant years. And I, and I was really lucky that I didn't really spend any of those years in the spotlight. But, of course, you know, I had a lot of personal failures as well, along with not really being where I wanted to be in my career. And there were plenty of contemplated moments of going, like, what am I doing? Life just sucks. Which I think most 
kids, and I call myself a kid, I was a kid, that didn't have that, like, kind of very stable, well-adjusted childhood or the experience of going to school and going to college and making mistakes and falling down and getting back up again. Like, I just didn't really have any solid ground to stand on or know what was what or what my purpose was supposed to be or if I was going to be a success and what even being a success meant. What it meant to you. What it meant to me. I knew what it meant to other people, and I knew that I probably wasn't a success. It was kind of like right after I did music and lyrics, I was offered record deals, and they wanted me to be a pop star. And I was like, yeah, but if I ever produced music, I would want it to be something soulful and from my heart and... I would want to produce the music and I would want to write the songs and and that's not what people wanted. So again, it was like conforming to what other people wanted rather than what I wanted. And it's been a long road to going, okay, what do I want? What do I really want? And then I thought, like, what do other people want from me that will look like I'm successful Mm. and what will make me happy. I only knew that I was just unhappy. Did the year 2016 make you happy? No. I mean, I had incredible experiences on the sets that I was lucky to be on. I don't mean to sound ungrateful in any way for those experiences because they were wonderful at the time. They like, you know, it's like an addiction, you know, you're like, oh, I got a job. It's, it becomes an addiction. Just being cast in a movie can become an addiction for an actor, especially a a young actor going, oh my God, somebody says I'm valuable. Somebody says I'm worth something. Somebody says that I'm good at what I do and gives me that validation. So everything's kind of been a learning experience and I've worked with incredible actors, but still, and like not fulfilling in the way that I expected or wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, there were some little performances that I did my best to do good work. But still, I I never felt, like, fulfilled, or I always kind of felt kind of let down. And then there's all that hype, and then the movie comes out, and it's never as good as you expected. It's never as bad as you think it will be, and it's never as good as you expect it to be. And doesn't really, like, are those performances going to get me recognized to the types of filmmakers that I want to work with? Mm -hmm. Mm, Do they really change anything? Are they really like, am I going to be able to... And I guess in a way they did because Carlos saw my performance in Girl on the Train. And I think Swallow is one of the most significant performances and the closest I've come to getting in touch with my creative source. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were thinking and about that's it very truly practically. Not practically. It's in this industry, it's so financially driven. People are adding up numbers and telling you if you're meant to be cast. And truly, the reason that I was able to do this film is because it was made for under a million dollars. I would have never been cast in this movie had it had $20 million backing. Mm -hmm. 
It's a lot of people making decisions that have nothing to do with the art itself. Exactly. And so that's always in the back of your mind as an actor. So simultaneously, you're trying to make decisions that are going to be significant enough to enable you to do the things that you really want to do. Which is hard. Which is hard. You're basically trying to strike a balance. It's a terrible, strange, and difficult relationship to have as mm. an actor with your own career. And at every level, you know, it, even when you're just starting out or when you're figuring things out or when you found some success and then you're demonized. And it, it's really complicated. It's a really wonderful business Actually, the business side of it isn't. The business side of it's terrible. But then, like, the heart of what we do and my experience working on this film, Swallow, was the greatest experience of my career. And that was because it had nothing to do with the business. And I have to thank Carlo for that because Carlo was so generous and kind and had so much humility to allow us ownership, allow me to join him as a true collaborator, listen. Um, and we were able then to transcend beyond our traditional roles, which was go to America, and to reveal myself in a different way that I have never really been able to reveal myself. Someone that I think spiritually is in alignment with what you want and is certainly in alignment with what I want as a filmmaker uh-huh. is Terrence Malick, uh. who I know has meant a great deal to you. I love Terrence, yeah. When you two met, did that feel like you, oh. you had found someone? I'm eating my chocolate. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, I felt a true kinship. And I felt like, oh okay, he sees me. And his films are like poetry. And he's such a gentle, kind, pure artist. It was amazing. It was a completely unconventional process that I was cast. So the process of being cast was was extremely unconventional. Um, In the sense that... So Francine Maisler was the casting director who I adore. And I think she's cast me in something else, but I don't remember what it is. Or she's just been a huge advocate of mine. Um, but basically, it was an interview, like what we're doing right now. And it was a filmed interview, essentially about my life, things I wouldn't even talk about here. But I wanted to reveal myself in this way because, again, I want to tell the truth through my art. And so we did this interview, and then I was asked for... So the callback was this monologue. And I was really nervous. I was like, oh, God. So he asked to do the monologue in four different ways. And it was a really kind of intimate-feeling monologue, but to switch from anger to sadness, to from angst to elation. And so I moved past that audition, I guess, and I was like, okay, well, this is never going to happen. And then I received my third callback, which was then to meet Terrence and to do a um, screen test with Chivo, his um, DP, who I love. And it was all improvisation and weirdo. I flew to Austin, Texas. And, and then, if it all went well, I was to meet the wizard. 
And that was the fourth phase, which was um, I made it past the improvisation, and then I met Terrence, and we sat at a Mexican restaurant in Austin, and I had a compass that I had bought for my then-husband. And um, he had said, oh, I bought a compass for my wife, too. And we kind of bonded over that, and... We were extremely candid. It felt like really real and really candid, and he really was interested to know, like, he's he's interested in human beings. It's not about the business or anything like that. And I was cast in the film, and then later, um, not uncast, but cut from song to song. But I had an incredible, incredible experience, and I learned so much from working with Terrence. But it was heartbreaking again to be like, you know, I'll never see my work. And he ended up calling me and saying, well, uh, they're going to sue me if I don't cut the movie down. <laughs> it's 13 hours. <laughs> and I wish that your beautiful work could be seen. But he later on um, wrote the letter to Anton Fuqua. He hand-typed a letter and sent it to Anton Fuqua, who then cast me in The Equalizer. And I have a really tragic story about that, but we can move on from that. But anyway, I still have the type letter from Terrence that he wrote. I have a photocopy of the letter that he wrote to Antoine Fuqua. And that was considered, to me, a huge success. And the things that he said in that letter, I have engraved in my heart. <laughs> As someone who spent time with Terrence Malick, what does he represent to you as a person in the world? When you think of him, what are the kind of adjectives? An angel. He's an angel. He's kind. He does his own thing, you know. He, he's original. And I don't think that he follows any rules. Have you tried to adopt those principles? Well, I suppose... Yeah, I'm trying. I moved to England and live in a tiny village that feels so far away and removed from Hollywood. And I'm really happy. Mm. I'm curious about this because you've moved there. You have a kid. You're married. I'm not married, actually. You're not married? No. Well, okay. But we do have a child, and he is my soulmate. <laughs> Marriage is a, is a yeah. scam anyway. So yeah, agreed. You have a partnership. Yeah, true partnership, yeah. You said earlier in this uh, talk that at 18, when you get your first movie, and really up until maybe a year or two ago before this film, you said a lot of my life was being told to stand there, look this way, turn this way, be a certain kind of thing. It was a commodity. Yeah. You know, I felt sort of like a commodity. Yeah. Excuse there, me. There was like a commodification yeah. of you as an entity to be yeah. bought and sold. Yeah. I don't think that's where you seem to be now. But I think what you were actually talking about is other people assigning value mm -hmm. and telling you that is the thing that is going to make you feel valuable. Mm -hmm. Now that you're... 32 on the other side of this in some way with the kid mm -hmm. where is your value coming from um that was a deep breath 
Um, I think it's coming from the sense of having survived adversity. Um, I believe in my strength as a human being. I believe in my ability as a mother. I believe in myself as an artist. I have heard my true voice and I appreciate what she has to say. Um, whereas before I wasn't really, I didn't know that I was capable. I was so probably blinded by life's traumas to see what I truly wanted in life. And now I know that's just to be happy, that, mm. that it's not going to be based on a job, that my happiness definitely isn't going to come from a job and that that's all. You stop believing in the shit, the hype, because it, you know, you know, it's, it's just learning from experience. And I think that that has also been like from taking myself out of that kind of game. It's, you know, it's mm -hmm. just not a part of my life. My self-value. I don't know. I think the point is, is to stop thinking about yourself to step back and stop thinking about yourself in that kind of, as, you know, I started looking at myself as a commodity rather than, like, a human being with a life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some days I don't feel as confident, and that's okay, too. Like, sometimes I feel like crap, and sometimes I feel tired, and sometimes I feel like I... I'm never going to be where I want to be. But then you say, well, that's okay. It's okay. It's just today. Hmm. To broaden this out before we leave and to not just think about ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're in this moment right now uh, in this industry, but this is really not about the industry. I'm curious how you feel in terms of where we're at in the Me Too of it all, especially now as a parent and as an actress who worked in the mid-2000s and is now working in 2020, do you feel there's been improvements? Do you believe the hype, so to speak? I mean, I can only really speak from my experiences, and I choose to work with great people and I have an incredible partner and so I feel really safe and I put myself in positions to feel safe and to feel supported and the fact that there is this spotlight on me too and um, I think people behaving in ways that are respectful I think that there is definitely more of a conscious behavior. And so whether that is, you know, just a lucky thing or whether it's, you know, putting myself in the positions to be safe, I think it's kind of goes hand in hand. That was the first time you answered very politely and carefully. <laughs> There's more. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny because uh, we have to go now, but this podcast I do I do it also as someone who's like making movies themselves but also spiritually um, the goal of the show 
is to not be full of shit. That's <laughs> I, that's like honestly the basic, and you've done a great job of it. Oh, uh, 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 you have. Well, I have been um, criticized for being maybe too honest in my life. I don't. I think that's a good thing. And and not in my life in this business. Right. Well, I think it's a good thing because people now more than ever really know when someone's full of shit. You but can do hear they it. care? I don't know. I mean, I think so. I guess it depends on who you're talking about. <laughs> it, it, it does depend on who you're talking about. I'm interested before this person walks in. <laughs> what do you want for yourself moving forward? Um, I want to work in Europe more. And that's just like geographically because it makes sense for my life. I want to work with people that make me happy and that have the same vision. And I want to give my daughter a really good, happy life. I want her to have self-value that um, comes from a deep sense of herself. I want her to know herself mm. um, so that she doesn't base her value on what other people want from her. So that kind of stability, I think. I think stability is really important for children. And I want to give some good performances and make more films. Please cast me. <laughs> I think it's all going to work out. Um, and I, I really do wish that for you. Thank uh, you. And your daughter. Thanks. Maybe one day she'll listen back on this and mm. think, all right, I think yeah. my mom did a great job. I have a garden. Oh, a garden. That would I be just good. put up a wash line in mm-hmm. our backyard that I'm very excited about using in the spring. I'm sure it's going to be wonderful. I had to get that one in. Thank God. This podcast would not have been complete without the wash line. Um, Haley Bennett, thank you very much. Thanks. that's our show. Thank you for listening to that episode with Haley Bennett. What I wanted to talk about just for a moment here is something that unfolded over the past few days for those who are not on the social media platform. There is a film writer on the internet who used the N-word privately in a direct message to someone. She used that word four years ago in a direct message that was then earlier this week, shared publicly. And what followed was the kind of bullying and harassment that is common in this space. And then, after hours of bullying, this film writer um, apologized profusely. But it wasn't enough, because hours after that, as the harassment and criticism continued, she posted a video online apologizing once again clearly broken up by what she had done and what she had written privately and above all how she had been treated 
in the intervening hours. There is blood on her arms in the video, and we later learned that she was rushed to the hospital and um, as of right now is okay um, and is recovering. And boy, there have been a lot of responses online to her language. And what I think is important to note is that this all began with hateful language. It began by someone using a word that they shouldn't have used. And it was used by someone believing it was okay to casually use this word. And it's not okay. No one thinks it's okay. But there have also been a lot of responses that believe we need to match this hateful language with hate. That that is the answer. And then there are other people, mainly white people, who believe we need to meet this moment with kindness and empathy and compassion. I've read a bunch of these tweets, much more than I should have. And I have to say, I think neither are exactly right. I'm not satisfied personally by either of them. There is one person on the internet that I found that I want to shout out, and it's a film critic over at RogerEbert.com. His name is Robert Daniels. I do not know Robert, but you can follow him at 812 Film Reviews, and I thought what he wrote was especially nuanced. He said, Equating someone knowingly using the N-word or participating in anti-blackness as a mistake or normalizing it in any way really isn't the avenue to start on, he continued. Bullying shouldn't happen, full stop. But purely asking for kindness or asking a black person to respond with kindness or empathy when the N-word has knowingly been used is an oversimplification from some very smart people. There's space for criticism and, yes, anger without insidious dogpiling. And it's frustrating that when there are components of this that really should be thoughtfully examined, they're instead either being reduced to pure rage or a bumper sticker. And that, I think, is exactly right. I think what Robert kind of nailed is something I've been grappling with personally and thinking about. It is a behavior that is unsustainable. It is a purity of thought and action that is unrealistic and... Um, it is a kind of morality that is so narrow that I don't know anyone, truly anyone, that could possibly fit into it. What I'm trying to say is the dialogue, if we're even going to have a dialogue that resembles anything that is kind of healthy, needs to be more nuanced. It needs to be open to imperfection. In fact, it needs to be ready and expecting imperfection because... That's all we have. All we have is a life where we have to accept the faults within us, the faults within other people, the faults within our friends, our family, our parents, our lovers. Yeah. I am so deeply uh, distraught and terrified by this climate. Not because 
it doesn't favor people who look like me. But because it doesn't favor people. It's not in favor of human life, of idiosyncrasies and imperfections. And it's not about race. Although in this case, it is about race. It's someone who said something they know they shouldn't have said. And the problem is, it took until this moment, until a private message was shared publicly, for that person to publicly recognize that that kind of language is not acceptable. And I can't speak for her, so maybe internally with her friends, with the website that she ran, she acknowledged her shortcomings on the matter. And we all have shortcomings, especially on race. And I just hope, if we learn anything from this, that it really shouldn't take... um, It really shouldn't take someone publicly in pain, someone in such pain that they feel the only option, the only avenue they have is to post about it on Twitter. She didn't do it for attention. She did it because she didn't have any other options. Or at the very least, she believed she didn't have any other options. I mean, how sad is that? Think about these conditions. And then you wonder, how did we arrive here at this moment with this treatment? And unfortunately, I think a lot of it has to do with people that look exactly like me. Even though half of my family is listening to this and they're like, we're Mexican. What are you talking about? No one has ever cared about us. But it's because of folks who look like me that have made the conditions so untenable, that have silenced voices for so long, that there is real anger and rage. And the anger and rage is justified. And the people who criticize this woman for using this word are justified. They're allowed to do that. And they ought to do that. But what we need to figure out as a people, is how we can give criticism while still letting people grow and change and learn. I think most people want that. I don't think it's controversial for me to say that on here. And I'm certainly open to learning. I know I'm wrong so often. My God. I am wrong all the time. And if you're listening to this, you're probably wrong all the time too. And it's okay. It's okay. And I don't know when it happened on Twitter and on Facebook and on Reddit and every other forum where words are the dominant feature, but we made it not okay. We reduced the complexity of our lives We streamlined and simplified. We cut out anything that was messy. And what we're left with is not a person. It's not a person. And um, so I really appreciate what Robert said on Twitter. And I really hope more of us can follow in his footsteps in terms of responding with nuance. It's not good enough to say, 
that we need to treat this woman who said this thing with kindness and empathy. It's bullshit. That's not enough. Because doing that reduces the pain that one feels when they see that word used. It glosses over the trauma that people have in seeing that word. And on the other end, it's not okay to yell, to harass, to push someone to the brink of trying to take their life. No one learns that way. And uh, I'm sorry for the long-winded introduction to what is a very lovely, warm episode with Haley Bennett. But it's what's on my mind this week. And uh, I don't have the answers. I've never pretended to be someone that has the answers. But I know what we're doing now is not going to work. We're going to need to figure this out. And I hope we can do it together. And I hope we can do it in a way that feels even a little bit civilized. If you're still here listening, I appreciate you listening. This is a scary moment and a complicated moment. Like you, probably, I'm still processing and figuring out how I want to exist in the world and in this weird online space. So I hope you stick around while we continue figuring that out together. Until then, I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll be back here next Sunday morning. Have a good week, everyone. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter.